will be in the book of Romans this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament, right after the book of Acts. So as you probably know, we've been going through the book of Romans, a life in Christ. And what a life it is. We've seen that we are under sin. And that being under sin, we are also under God's wrath because of sin. But last week, we saw that God completely justifies us in Christ. And today, we're going to be adding to that understanding of what justification is. What does that mean to be justified by faith alone? And as we work our way through the letter, it's really helpful to keep the overall purpose of the letter in mind. And that is the glory of God seen in a united missionary church, humbled together under grace. So as we look at each individual part of the letter, let's keep that in mind of just why Paul is writing, who he's writing to, and what he hopes to accomplish. So hopefully you are with me in Romans 4. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, 
For when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for how your righteousness is revealed to us apart from works of the law. For we know that we are all under sin, and because of that, we're deserving of your wrath. But you have made a way for us to to know you and to be reconciled to you, to be righteous before you, and that is through faith. Lord, help us to understand more about this, Lord, as we look at your word this morning in Romans 4. Lord, we ask that you would open our, our eyes our ears, our hearts, our minds, to just really embrace your word, that we would be transformed by it, that we would live by faith for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. These were the words that Johann Tetzel would say day after day throughout the streets of Germany. He was a Roman Catholic monk in the early 1500s, and he was a prolific seller of indulgences. Tetzel's claim was that at the moment an indulgence was purchased, someone transitioned from purgatory to heaven. An indulgence, as you may know, was a price paid by a citizen during the Middle Ages so that someone would do penance on their behalf or the behalf of a loved one. Often then that penance they believed would free someone from purgatory. Of course, we do not believe in purgatory and there's no biblical basis for it, but they did at that time. And this system of indulgences and penance was very important to the Christian church at that time. And penance was essentially a process of making sanctification through, or sorry, satisfaction through good works for the penalty of sins that were committed. So it could have been giving alms or money to the church, it could have been doing good works, it could have been praying, or it could have been specific types of prayers. And in the Catholic view, penance pays the penalty for sin and supposedly strengthened the Christian against future temptations. There were elements of grace in the church's view of salvation at that time, but there, there was an undeniable and unavoidable presence of works within the system. Satisfaction for sin and a repaying of the penalty were very much dependent upon the individual who sinned. You wanted your penance that you did or someone else did on your behalf to outweigh your sin, but you can never be completely sure. And this was the state of the Christian church 500 years ago. The church whom Christ established to be a light and hope for the world propagated a works-based salvation. 
and how widespread this idea became and the fact that people made this idea represent Christ should help us see just how ingrained in humanity is the idea of a works-based salvation. And we cannot pretend that we are above that, that we are above to going back to a works-based salvation. And in Romans 4 today, we'll see just how deeply justification by works was ingrained into the Jewish nation, which again tells us that it is not just a national problem. It wasn't just a national problem for them, but it is a human problem. After Paul clearly lays out justification by faith alone in Romans 3, which was expounded last week, it's as if he has to prove again to the Jewish people justification is by faith alone. But I'm thankful that he does prove it again because I know I can be a slow learner. And again, I think it is a human tendency for us to go back to that. And it was obviously something, again, that the Jews needed to hear because he brings up Abraham. And what better example for the Jewish people than Abraham? And so today through Romans 4, we see that just as Abraham believed God and was counted righteous because of his faith, we are counted righteous by faith apart from works. As we turn back to the text, Paul identifies quickly the foolishness of justification through works, saying in verse 2, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If we have anywhere near a correct view of God in his holiness and in his perfection, we will understand that we who are finite beings have no room to boast before he who is infinite. And as we probe into the first part of this text, we'll see that in justification, in being made right before God, what happens is we do not receive what we ought to receive. Instead, we are forgiven. But instead, we receive what we don't deserve, which is righteousness. So therefore, all boasting is excluded. Boasting is thrown out at the beginning. But then Paul wants us to see the particulars of why justification excludes boasting. To present his argument, Paul doesn't just give his opinion, which I think is really helpful for us to see in a time where opinions are prevalent, but where does he go? He goes back to the scriptures. He says, what does scripture say? He appealed to the authority of the scripture. The scripture says, as Paul quotes from Genesis fifteen six, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Throughout the whole chapter, Paul uses the word count or counts or counted a lot. In fact, he uses it 11 times. So it's quite an important word for us to understand in the big scheme of things and especially with this text. Sometimes the word can be translated credit or reckon or impute. It can often be used in a financial sense, so crediting something to someone's account. But it could also mean a rep, um, to represent someone as having a specific attribute or status, even if he does not have it, but to attribute it to him. And Paul uses it in both of these ways, to credit or to account. Now, financially, there are two ways you can credit something to someone's account. 
And this is what Paul is getting at in verses 4 and 5. He wants us to see contrasts here. You can credit something to someone's account as something he is due, like a worker who has earned wages. And then since the worker has earned wages, the employer is then in debt to the employee. So then he credits the wages to his account. But God's justification of us is a different sort of crediting. What is added to our account is not a wage earned, but it is a free gift. Verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in this case, any sense of wages, debt, or obligation is inappropriate, since no work was done by the one who receives the gift. So when God justifies us, he gives us something we did nothing to deserve. And what he gives us is nothing less than his perfect righteousness. So that is the first aspect of justification that I want to point out is receiving something that I do not deserve. Then in addition to receiving what we don't deserve, God withholds from us what we do deserve. Paul appeals to another hero of the Jewish faith and back to the scriptures again, this time in Psalm 32, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he quotes David to make this point. David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, to understand what David means when he says we are blessed when forgiven, it's helpful to see what else he says in this chapter concerning when sins are not forgiven. In verses 3 and 4 of that same chapter, chapter 32 of the Psalms, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The weight of unforgiven sin rests heavily upon the sinner. It causes the unforgiven to waste away, to groan, and for their strength to be dried up. That experience is then continued and magnified in eternity for the unforgiven. But that was not the case for David. David said, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David personally experienced that blessing. So we have seen that in justification we do not receive what we ought to receive. We ought to receive death, for you know as Romans 6, 23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. We have earned death and we have earned unforgiveness. But we do not receive what we ought to receive. Instead, we are forgiven. Instead, we receive what we don't deserve. We receive righteousness. We can often believe in error that justification is only about having our sins forgiven, which is true, as we have seen. That is part of it. Our sins are forgiven. But if we only understand that part, we miss out on so much. If our sins are only forgiven, where does that leave us? Nowhere. We have a clean slate, but we need more than a clean slate. We need God's righteousness. We need the record of his good deeds to be our record. We need to be righteous to be accepted by God. Not just forgiven, but we need his very own righteousness. 
also, if we don't see ourselves as righteous in Christ, yes, sinful in our flesh, but righteous in Christ, we have a lot less chance of acting righteously. And this is what Paul has in mind in, in the book of Philippians. In a chapter that has much to do with righteousness and justification, he says in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. Christ has made us righteous, so then let us act righteously. Often I think this is why some believers make so little progress in sanctification. They've been told that their sins are forgiven, but they do not know or believe that they have God's righteousness, that they have been made righteous in Christ. They don't understand that they've really been made new, that their heart of stone was taken out and they were given a heart of flesh. If we really believe this about ourselves, it will deeply affect how we see ourselves and how we live our lives as a consequence. Having been justified by Christ, made righteous by him, means that all boasting is then excluded. And that's what Paul had started out with. He says, There is nothing that we have done to earn our salvation, nothing we could ever add to it. So Christians should be the most humble and thankful people. There should be a great difference between us and the world in this regard. And sometimes, unfortunately, there is not. There is not a great difference. And sometimes, quite honestly, when I <laughs> am a student of social media, I don't see the great difference there either. But there should be a great difference between us and the world with regard to our boasting or our lack of boasting as believers. Francis Schaeffer said, and this is a quote that has always stuck with me, he said, The beginning of man's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. We are to be deeply thankful people, deeply humble people. Because if we believe about the gospel, if we believe what we say we believe about it, then boasting is excluded. Because it is something that Christ has done on our behalf. So then having reestablished once again a basis for justification, Paul then addresses the question of circumcision as it relates then to justification. And we'll see here from this section that since justification is by faith alone, we must avoid making other considerations salvation issues and pursue unity upon, upon all being justified the same way. In verse 9, he says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So the blessing of forgiveness that David just extolled, or Paul quoted from David, is it for the circumcised or uncircumcised? He seems to be anticipating the next question of the Jews again, because this, again, this idea of salvation by works has really deep roots. <coughs> verse 10 says, how then was it, which is righteousness, counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And Scripture is quite obvious that is the case. As we've seen, it was in Genesis 15, the Scripture read earlier in the service, that Abraham believed God and God's righteousness was credited to him. 
And then it was two chapters later in Genesis 17 that Abraham received circumcision, the sign of the covenant. At least 15 years had passed between these two events. So Abraham's belief in God's declaration to him, righteous for his belief, was well before circumcision. So why did God allow so much time to pass before Abraham was circumcised? Verses 11 and 12 say, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was believed. God had promised Abraham that he would be not just the father of the Jews, but God changed his name from Abram, which had meant exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. In addition to being father of a multitude, all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, as God promised in Genesis 12. So Paul is saying that the relationship between Abraham's justifying faith and his circumcision is important because it also allows the inclusion of all tribes and tongues into salvation and therefore into Abraham's family through Christ. Because justification is by faith alone, not through circumcision, not through any other work. Salvation is for all people, all tribes and tongues. So, God had in mind the unity of the church composed both of Jews and Gentiles all the way back in Genesis. We have said that one of Paul's main purposes for writing to the Romans was the unity of the church in Rome. And we see that how that is fleshed out here because he's saying you are justified by faith apart from circumcision. And that's for Jews and Gentiles. And he wants them both to understand that because it affects unity. In other places in Scripture, like Acts and Galatians, we see the issue of circumcision was a super big deal for the early church. There were Jewish believers who had trusted Christ, but thought many of the Jewish regulations, such as circumcision, still apply and affect salvation. So they tried to force the Gentile believers to be circumcised. Now you can imagine that the Gentiles weren't lining up with excitement for that one. But something much more than just physical flesh was at stake. And that's why it was such a big deal. Circumcision is a big deal, the physical part. But even more so than that, it was a big deal in terms of doctrine, what we believe about God. And you can argue that in terms of doctrine that there's nothing more important than understanding how we're made right with God, how we're justified. And that's what was at stake in the early church, and that's what Paul is referencing here in Romans 4. There is nothing necessary to salvation that we must do after placing faith in Christ. And Paul shows us here and many other places in the New Testament that we are justified through Christ's work alone. Nothing can be or needs to be added to it. Now, if we have genuine saving faith, there will be fruit displayed through our works. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone, but bears fruit of good works. But we are still saved by faith alone. 
Obviously, circumcision for justification is not an issue for us today, but we certainly still struggle not to add anything to Christ's work. We struggle as a culture, and we struggle individually. And all churches, even our churches, have certain cultures. And often the things of any particular church culture can be interpreted by those outside that church and even those inside the church as gaining favor with God. It could be a certain style of dress. It could be a certain uh, educational choice for our children. It could be a certain worship style. It could be not listening to secular music or not watching movies with certain ratings. It could be a particular type of theology or uh, affiliation with the denomination that makes us feel good about ourselves. And while the Word of God does speak about all these things and much more, they do not make us right with God. Only Christ's work does that. Only Christ's work makes us right with God. So we can struggle as, as a culture, and we can also struggle individually with that as well. It could be the frequency that you read your Bible or your consistency at church. It could be good things, great things like that. But they cannot be made means of earning favor with God. It could be other things like your your fitness level, your diet, your education level, your appearance. Anything for which you think God looks at you more favorably and you see others as below you, then that's an issue with your heart. And that's trying to add to the work of Christ or trying to justify yourself before the Lord. None of these things save or earn God's favor. Only Christ's blood does that. As we begin to look towards the end of the passage, we see that justification does not just deal with our past, but it deals with our future as well. After Abraham was counted righteous through faith, he lived by faith to obtain the promises that God had made to him. Just as Abraham glorified God by trusting God as the God of creation and resurrection, we are to do the same. In our faith, we are to glorify God by trusting God for who He is, that He is the God of creation, that He is the God of resurrection. God made many great promises to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, the Lord says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All these great promises, as our passage in Romans 4 says, were to be realized through faith, not through obedience to the law. As we share in Abraham's faith, we share in the promises that were made to him, and we come to inherit those promises. And the rest of the chapter gives us a picture of what type of faith it is that justifies and enables us to inherit God's promises. Verse 17 says that that the God in whom Abraham believed is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist Giving life to the dead means that God is a God who resurrects. To call into existence things that do not exist means that God is a God who creates out of nothing. And Abraham's belief about God 
was put to the test regarding both of these specific points. Is God a God who brings the dead to life? Is God a God who creates out of nothing? Verse 19 says that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was a hundred years old. He had to trust the God of the resurrection to put life in his body. Sarah's womb was barren. A place of barrenness is a place of nothingness. Abraham had to trust God to be the God who creates something out of nothing. Verses 20 and 21 say, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Is your faith one in which you trust that God can bring the dead to life and create something out of nothing? Because that's what we see here with Abraham. Do you recognize your deadness in sin apart from Christ and that you need a resurrecting work? Do you recognize your nothingness apart from God and that you need Him to create something in you that is pleasing to Him? That you need His righteousness in you that would be pleasing to God. A justifying faith is a faith that believes God is who He says He is. Being justified by faith is not just a one-time event, but it is a lifelong walk of of faith-fueled obedience in the same direction that's purpose then is to bring glory to God. Our faith is not just about us. It is about bringing glory to God. There's an illustration here that I heard recently that I'd like to share that I, I think really helps bring this out in terms of our faith bringing glory to God. Suppose that you are a three-year-old on the edge of a pool, and your daddy is standing in the swimming pool out a little bit from the edge, and he's holding out his arms to you, and he's saying, jump, I'll catch you, I promise. Now, how do you make your daddy look good at that moment? The answer is that you, you trust him and you jump. Have faith in him and jump. That makes him look strong and wise and loving. But if you won't jump, if you shake your head and run away from the edge, you make your daddy look bad. It looks like you're saying, he can't catch me or he won't catch me or it's not a good idea to do what he tells me to do. All three of those make your dad look bad. But you don't want to make your dad look bad. So you trust him. Then you make him look good, which he really is. And that is what we mean when we say that faith glorifies God. And that justifying faith, that its purpose, as we see in Abraham's life, was to give God glory. Justifying faith believes that God is who he says he is, and and then that faith acts on that belief, making God look good, giving him glory. Now, I can imagine for some of you at this point, you could be thinking, 
that's great. That's a great illustration. But I, I'm not sure that I have the courage to jump. Where does that leave me? If justifying faith is the heroic faith of Abraham, even if it is the courage of the child of, on the diving board, I'm not sure I have the courage. Well, there is good news for you. There is good news for us. It's not the intensity of our faith that saves, but it is the object of our faith that saves. In referencing the blood of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament that was put over the doorpost that saved the Israelites in Egypt, D.A. Carson says this, he says, Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercise, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. As we have seen, our justification is about laying hold of something that is outside of us, that is done on our behalf. We are saved by faith alone, as faith is the instrument that connects us to the objective person and work of Christ. Jesus Christ saves, and he does that through faith giving us a faith that connects us to himself. It's important to realize this, this, this distinction because faith in faith is nothing. And when people say faith these days, a lot of the times that can be what is meant. But faith in faith is nothing. And faith can be a fluffy, popular word today, even among the world. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a faith that connects us to the deepest reality in the universe, the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. He who lived, died, and rose again in time and space, just as the scriptures say, to save us and then to inaugurate his kingdom. So a faith that is an instrument that connects us to Christ. And as we live by faith, we glorify him in the world around us. When I say live by faith, I mean living in such a way that you're in big trouble if God does not show up. So it could be sharing Christ with a neighbor, and you're super anxious about it, and you don't know where it's going to go, but you step out in faith because you know that Christ cares for this person, and you know that our God is a God who saves, and He will show up. Living by faith could be leaving a job that has been difficult for you and your family and trusting Christ to provide something else that would be better for you and your family. It could be living by faith, could be serving or stepping out to lead or to speak in public when that's not something that you're comfortable doing. Living by faith is a very unique balance of waiting on the Lord and stepping out in faith and trusting His Holy Spirit to give you discernment between those two things, waiting and taking action. Reflecting upon the life that Abraham lived, our passage ends starting in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who's delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So way back in Genesis 15, God wrote, it was counted to him, not just regarding Abraham, but he wrote it with all of us in mind who would be Abraham's children through faith. 
All of us who would acknowledge that our wages have earned death, that we need forgiveness, that we need something counted to us that we could never attain. We need the righteousness of God. If you believe in Christ, who was delivered up for your trespasses and raised from the dead for our justification, you will be saved. If you have never done that, I'll encourage you to do that this moment or to do that silently as we close the service with the Lord's Supper. And then if you do that today, I would encourage you to tell me or another leader here just so that you can be cared for in your young faith. Maybe you've been here and you know that you've been justified by by faith alone, but you realize just how much works creep back in. And you've seen some ways that you seek to justify yourself before God. I would encourage you, if that is you, to do what we should all do every day, which is repent and believe. Maybe you feel that your faith is so weak. Maybe you feel that you're the person on the diving board that can't jump. Rest. Rest in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you. It's not the intensity of our faith that saves, but it is Christ, the object of our faith. Thankfully, the alarming story of Christ's church that I shared at the beginning is not the end of the story. We're here today, and I'm preaching, by God's grace, justification by faith alone. Around that same time in the early 1500s, a young Catholic monk with a soft heart began to be driven mad. He began to have insurmountable doubt. His taking the Catholic system seriously drove him to despair. He could not get past that God required something of him that he could not attain. He worried constantly if he was sorry enough for his sin. He drove the priests that he confessed to crazy because he was always there and he always went on and on. He realized the weight of his sin and he realized that he needed a savior. And this young, young monk began to devote himself to the Word of God, particularly the book of Romans. And God opened his eyes to see and discover that justification is indeed by faith alone, as it has always been written there in the Word of God since the time of Abraham. And this young monk, Martin Luther, posted his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. And when he did that, a reformation was sparked of the church that would bring light onto the word of God that had been obscured and kept from the common people. And then by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through his word alone, by faith in Christ alone, the world was changed. Praise God. Praise God for the reformation. But we would be foolish to believe the world and the church are not still in need of reformation, that we ourselves are not still in need of reformation. We continue to fight against lies, and sometimes we're taken captive by them. The accuser tells us we need to do more, we need to be better to be accepted by God. Not true. Christ has, he was rejected that we would be accepted. Our own flesh, our own pride often wants to earn so that we can boast. And when we do, we're short-circuiting our growth in Christ. We need to recognize the lies that are present around us and throughout the global church and the world. 
and how we can be taken captive and proclaim the truth of Scripture and love, just as Paul did concerning Abraham and David, that we are saved by faith alone. A research report published last fall by Lifeway Research reaffirmed some alarming trends that, and many of you won't find these surprising, but they're alarming nonetheless. It revealed that 52% of Americans believe that good deeds help them earn a spot in heaven. The same poll revealed that 64% of those who describe themselves as evangelical, that's our type of people, okay, they believe that heaven is a place where all people, all people will be reunited with their loved ones. Not true. Only 57% of Americans agreed with the statement that God would be fair to display his wrath against sin. And just 19% of Americans agree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Only 19%. All these statistics show that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is still under attack and not understood This truth clearly revealed in Scripture has been under attack since Adam and Eve and always will be because the enemy knows it's how we're truly reconciled to God. In addition, as I've talked about, our sinful hearts, our flesh, wants to boast and to glorify in our own names, not in God's name, not give glory to Him alone. Justification is by faith alone. So let us boldly proclaim this biblical and true doctrine. Let us proclaim it to ourselves and then to a world that is desperately in need of continuing reformation. Let's proclaim it until our faith becomes sight. Let's pray. Lord, all glory to your name. All glory to your name. Because what I deserve is your wrath. What I deserve is to be unrighteous forever, to, to be unforgiven forever, to be separated from you forever. But you do not give me what I deserve. You forgive me. You forgive us. Lord, Lord glory to your name that you do not merely wipe clean our slate but you give us your very own righteous. You declare righteous. You declare us righteous by faith. And you see us with that righteousness. And Lord, though we still fall short, Lord, help us to understand that we've been made righteous and to help us, help us then to live out what you have attained for us in making us righteous. Lord, at times our faith will feel weak. It will feel as though we don't have the courage to jump off the diving board into your arms and to make you look good. Lord, at those times, help us to rest in knowing that the object of our faith is what saves, not the intensity of it. And Lord, your work on the cross is effective. It accomplishes for us all that you ask for it to accomplish. We are completely saved. And by your grace, we will persevere, Lord, 
to see you face to face, face to face, for our faith to become sight. Lord, help us to glory in you. Help us to rejoice in justification by faith alone, Lord, and rid our hearts of boasting attempts that we would make, ways that we rely on, on our own systems of earning favor with you. Lord, help us to see those and to repent and to praise you alone. Lord, as we continue in our worship through the Lord's Supper and through song, Lord, draw our hearts near to you. Lord, we are thankful you are our God and we are your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. I'd like to read this from Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an, as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Knowing that you have been made righteous by faith alone, if you have put your trust in Christ, go out and live by faith, looking forward to that heavenly city and welcoming God's kingdom here in our midst as he would continue to reform us and to reform a people for his glory and possession. Go in peace.